0: Artificial intelligence is changing the way lawyers practice law. It used to be that AI would help lawyers perform long, tedious tasks more efficiently and quickly, like document review or legal research. However, in the last few years, AI has advanced to the point where computers and software can now predict the outcomes of court cases and even provide answers for people who might not be able to afford to hire a lawyer. With advanced technology, of course, comes the age-old controversy about whether or not artificial intelligence is as reliable as human intelligence. I'm Victor Lee, filling in for Stephanie Francis Ward. On today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast, I'll be talking to Julie Sobawali, a freelance journalist and lawyer based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Welcome to the show, Julie.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So you've written one of the main features for the April edition of the ABA Journal entitled Robots Are Us. Could you talk a little bit about it, but especially about how you came up with the story idea?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I've been covering legal technology for, I would say, about six years. And one of the things that really intrigued me was artificial intelligence. And my interest kind of peaked last year when I heard about Ross Intelligence, which is one of the companies talked about in the article, coming in second place for a competition with IBM Watson. And they were kind of the first company in Canada that was working with this type of technology, which was basically using robots. To do the work of lawyers. And so I kind of looked into that a little bit, and then I heard about Denton's, which is now spun off a, a subsidiary that is wholly independent and works on this type of legal technology, so artificial intelligence, predictive toting, all those kind of things. And so I really wanted to kind of dive into where are we going in the legal profession in terms of artificial intelligence and really what does the future look like.
0: I have a little bit of familiarity with Denton's uh, lab, I think it's called Nexlaw Lab, because I originally featured them in my feature, which is also supposed to run in April, that deals with law firms developing their own technology. So once I found out that you were talking to them, I took them out of the piece. So you don't have to worry about uh, me stealing your your copy. So I wanted to ask you about Ross Intelligence, because it sounded very promising to me when I was looking into it. Could you talk a little bit about what it is, what it does, and how it could potentially affect the legal industry?
1: Yeah, definitely. So there's these two young lawyers in Toronto, and one of the co-founders really had an idea to do legal research in a more efficient and cheaper way after going through an experience in which his parents were going through a divorce and they had hefty legal fees, which is a very common story, not only in Canada, but in the U.S. And so he, along with Andrew, who's also featured in the piece, they got together and they decided to create Ross Intelligence, which was using IBM Watson to do legal research. So what does that mean? Right now, uh, how lawyers do their research is they use Westlaw or a similar program like that. And maybe you type in a keyword, right? So maybe I'm in personal injury law, and I want to look up case law on the maximum payouts for a certain type of head injury. Well, what Ross Intelligence would do is, You don't have to put it in that kind of Boolean searches. You can use plain language. You would type it in, and it would give you all the relevant legislation, case law, and a really easy-to-use format. But what makes Ross Intelligence really special is not only when you do that initial search, it'll bring you all those cases and legislation about those specific personal injury cases, but it'll also update you on research as it comes available. So maybe there's a new case that comes out two weeks later. Ross Intelligence will let you know and say, hey, I found something else that will help you. Or it'll even say, hey, you know, remember that original search that you did? I actually found something better later on. Here's the research that I'd like to show you. So in other words, it's working as a research lawyer, but a computer, and it's doing it faster and more efficiently. And this is kind of the way these two are thinking about how the legal profession
0: needs to evolve in this case in legal research gotcha so let me ask you obviously with a piece of technology that powerful it can help lawyers do their job more efficiently but it could also potentially help clients or you know regular people receive answers that maybe otherwise have to pay a lot of money to hire a lawyer or maybe they wouldn't even be able to hire a lawyer do you see products like this as being able to help bridge the sort of access to justice gap that we have, not just in this country, but also in Canada?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's two key things that you have to really consider when you're thinking about legal technology and access to justice. So there's one piece of what I like to call legal education, which is, you know, if I'm somebody who's in a traffic accident, you know, what are my rights? What if I want to you know, go to court? What is the process to go through in that? And there's people who are working on those kind of things to kind of lay out, you know, this is what the process is. You know, online dispute resolution is is another more sophisticated form of that. With technology like Ross Intelligence, when you put that in there, if I'm somebody who is self-represented, then if I have access to that technology where I can do searches in plain language, That can really change the game in terms of me representing myself in a legal system where I may not have those tools. But then there's a second key point to that that others have made, which is that technology can't fix all the access to justice problems. So with Ross Intelligence, one of the co-founders, the reason why he created this program is because of that memory of his parents going through family law court. This is a huge issue in access to justice right now with the number of self-represented litigants in family law. So something like Ross Intelligence can make that research cheaper, but for self-represented litigants, they might not still understand the system itself. So I might have the tools to search all these case law on custody and access, but if I don't really know the fundamentals of custody and access, I won't know what I'm looking for. So that's kind of the double-edged sword here when we talk about legal tax and access
0: to justice. So one of the I wanted to ask you about was there was an interesting stat that I pulled from your story. You say that in general, U.S. businesses spend about 3.5% of their revenue on research and development. And in some industries, it's a lot higher. I think like biotech and some other industries like that, it it's, could be as much as like 13%. I don't have the stat offhand. In the legal industry, though, you said that it's less than 1%. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, I think, and I talked to Dan Jansen about this from Denton's, who has a background in advertising and marketing. And in our conversation, we talked about how in the legal industry, we don't really think of R&D, pure R&D. So, you know, trying to push the boundaries of innovation, entrepreneurship, those kind of fundamentals that other companies do that we would think of for, say, a telecommunications company and cell phones. And kind of the reason why is our business model has been very rooted in the partnership model. And the partnership model really isn't created for that type of R&D thinking. So the revenues which we receive, we would have to take a percentage out of it to do the R&D. Well, that percentage is usually allocated to the partner. So you already kind of have a conflict right there. And also, the way that law firms have traditionally operated in terms of we get clients by referrals, we get clients and, you know, we do a little bit of advertising, word of mouth, all of these kind of fundamental traditional ideas, they're not, again, really rooted on why you would do R&D, why would you pour money into R&D? Because, again, we see it in under industries where when they do R&D, they're trying to get a competitive advantage, whether it's a new product, a new service, a new experience. And in the legal industry, that idea just hasn't caught on yet. That's why Next Law Labs is so interesting, because they see it as a competitive advantage to think this way, because they know there's very few law firms out there that are.
0: So obviously, um, I read your feature, I thought it was very good, and uh, I'm sure it'll get a very good reception next month, or maybe it won't, who knows? (laughs) These are lawyers that we're talking about. It it focuses on a lot of different things as opposed to just uh, Next Law Labs and things along those lines. One thing that you talk about is predictive analytics, and this is something that I've been hearing about for a while now. Software and computers that can predict outcomes, that can just kind of bring in you know, a much more powerful type of system than what maybe um, has been available before. Did you get a sense as why you're reporting as to uh, how widespread this is? Like, are there a lot of companies or a lot of law firms that are using this kind of predictive analytics, or is it still very much in the infancy?
1: Yeah, this is also something that I've been hearing about for the last couple of years. I think the first time I heard about it was when I was reporting on predictive coding a few years ago. And from the time that I saw this idea until the time I wrote the piece, I think it's still in its infancy. And what I mean by that is there are companies who are using it, but it's not as wide scale as, for example, eDiscovery and the various eDiscovery tools that are out there. Even predictive coding, I think there's at least a sizable minority that's using that technology. But in terms of predictive analytics, that's not that hasn't been as prominent yet as I thought it would be. But I think as one of the interviewees said, it's really kind of in the education phase. So people aren't really sure what is predictive analytics. You know, if I talk about traffic patterns and our GPS or various apps, you know, predicting the traffic and predicting the, the quickest route, then you, you understand what I'm talking about. And this is really the same thing with predictive analytics, but on a more sophisticated scale. So I don't think a lot of companies have caught on yet. And, and I use companies specifically because the ones that are using it are mostly uh, corporations in-house counsel who are using it for various usages. Compliance is, is a good example. But it really hasn't caught on yet, I think, in terms of the traditional law firm or the traditional clients.
0: Fair enough. So I also want to just ask you just in general, just based on obviously, um, you know, you've been reporting on legal tech for a while now. And uh, the constant knock on technology that I hear from lawyers is that it's not as reliable as an actual human, well-trained, well-regulated lawyer. Do you see merit in that view? Or do you think something else is at play like protectionism? Yeah,
1: so I won't be politically correct about this. It's definitely just pure protectionism. And I'll (laughs) And I'll explain why. So I I was talking to the CEO of Iberiba about this, and this is in the piece about, you know, why he decided to switch careers, because he had many different avenues which he could go into. But basically, he just wanted something different in his legal career. And he basically wants to help lawyers do their job by creating the tools that he has, which is basically helping to make contracts easier, that kind of thing. And I just don't really know why lawyers keep pushing back against this. The legal industry is so behind compared to other professions, even professions that are heavily regulated. The medical field is a very easy example. There are many different innovative and forward-thinking things that are going on in the medical field from e-files to, I mean, just, just incredible things. Even where I live in Nova Scotia, using big data to predict the number, you know, of cancer cases that would come up every year. So kind of that kind of thing. I don't really know why in the legal field we have to be so shy about this. Technology is already part of our society and our life in every facet, in every facet of any job, profession, industry. And we should not think, okay, well, you're a human being, and I trust you more than this computer, even though I know the computer would be more efficient to do it. I think a really simple analogy is if I'm going to write a letter to my client, I'm going to type it. I'm not going to handwrite it. I'm not going to use a typewriter. And that might seem like a simplistic idea, but really at this point, I think that's what we're dealing with. You know, why wouldn't you use the computer instead of using the typewriter? That's really what we're talking about here.
0: So... Obviously, we've talked a lot about your feature and what's in it. I also wanted to talk about just some other things as well just uh, that aren't uh, necessarily in the piece. You mentioned earlier online dispute resolution. Could you talk a little bit about that and what are some things that you've seen or just what you've heard with regards to how effective it is, how widespread it is, and whether you see that catching on?
1: Yeah, online dispute resolution is very interesting because there's been a lot of research done in this for, I would say, the past 10 years and a lot of different programs that have popped up. I know in Canada, there's a company in Quebec that created an app that helps you know manage your files so that the judges and the lawyers... It's kind of like cloud computing for online dispute resolution. In British Columbia, they've taken a step forward and they're incorporating that into their legislation. So basically, a small claims court would become ODR essentially. So you would have the option to do it the online way if you want to go that route. That's a more simplistic way of saying it, but there's other parts associated with it. So those kind of things give me a little bit of hope. But with something like Online dispute Resolution, there really isn't a tool out there that I would say this is a game changer, especially given that the idea has been out there for so long. I mean, this has been out there since I would say at least as early as 2005, 2004, when people were talking about it via email, and and even earlier than that in terms of research. And so, yeah, I don't see any major changes except what's happening with British Columbia in terms of actually making that available to all. And they're, they're incorporating it into mobile technology. I think that's really the future of ODR at this point, particularly since most people now have a smartphone compared to a laptop, and I'm talking about a specific, you know, age gap as well. You know, if you're talking about anybody under the age of 30, and you're talking about online discrete resolution, you got to talk about a smartphone. But yeah, to me, that's kind of where we're going. Gotcha.
0: And uh, I'm actually glad that you talked about generational issues. And you know, young people and whatnot. To kind of tie it back to your feature, one point that you make is how younger lawyers are more comfortable with technology and are more used to using it in their professional lives. So do you think that resistance to technology is really just a generational issue when it comes down to it and that as, you know, the older lawyers retire or leave the profession that you now have lawyers that are coming up that are used to using technology and that are comfortable with it and know what it can do and, you know, they're not worried that it's going to, you know, that Skynet's going to rise up and take over and, you know, and, you know, just start war games. Like, do you think that that's the case or do you think that there'll still be these kind of protectionist issues and obstacles to widespread acceptance of legal technology? Yeah,
1: there's a lot there. We have to be careful about the robots, right? Um, (laughs) actually, yes, of course. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm
0: not going to lie. That scares me. So no, 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 I know.
1: And there's, And I think there's more legal issues with things like driverless cars than, you know, whether I want to use something like Ross to do my legal research, but I digress. Um, Actually, I thought at first that it was generational, particularly when I was in law school and I started writing about this and I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is just typical older people. They don't like computers and we're young and we like computers and this whole thing. Uh, But actually, you know, I've met some really good lawyers who have been, in the profession, at least 20, 25 years, who are really championing for changes in legal tech. Of course, Jordan Furlong is an obvious example, but also where I live, there's a lawyer. Uh, his name is David Frazier. He has a privacy blog. It's, it's very popular. He's on Twitter. He's very tech-savvy has been for a very long time, and he's been practicing for a very long time as well. He's a partner at McInnes Cooper. So I see this more as a cultural issue because there are lawyers who are willing to adopt this technology. But our legal culture is, I trust the human being more than the machine. And you don't have that in industries. You don't have accountants saying, I trust that accountant more than QuickBooks. You don't have that. You know, right. Again, even in the medical field, we just have a culture where it's like, this is how it is, and we need to protect the sanctity of legaldom and, and our profession. And really, we need to move forward. We're in danger of making ourselves obsolete. When you think of companies like LegalZoom, there are people out there who won't think of LegalZoom as a law firm. They'll think of LegalZoom as providing legal services, and that switch has already kind of happened. So I think lawyers really need to be careful about this and really just be open to new ideas of working as a lawyer. I'm not talking about thinking as a lawyer or the fundamentals of what it is to be a lawyer, but just in terms of the practical day-to-day work. There's technology out there to make it simpler. We don't have to do it the old, you know, tried and true way. There are better ways and there are cheaper ways too, you know, and that's kind of the point that I wanted to make in the future that there are ways that will help you get more clients that will make your clients happier because it'll cost them less to do the work and it will make your associates happier because they'll spend less time doing inefficient things. But I do want to make a quick point about younger lawyers because I remember when I made a presentation at my old law school at Dalhousie University about this, there are young lawyers, they don't even want to be a part of any of this altogether and are opting out of legal practice because they see the old antiquated system or they're saying, I'm just going to go out on my own and do it differently. So there is a rising generation of young lawyers who are completely opting out of that old system and are trying to figure out different ways to basically practice law. It's not a coincidence that, you know, the co-founders of Ross or Iberiva or other companies like this are young, are younger lawyers, because they see that I want to make a change and I'm not buying into this old system.
0: Right, or very often they're people who, they were at a law firm for a little bit and then they had to leave and go out on their own, you know, either because of inefficiencies that they saw or just because they thought that they could do something better.
1: Yeah, exactly. I've talked to quite a few young lawyers, and I've written about them in the past. There's, I forget the name of the company off the top of my head. Oh, Clio. So when I wrote about Clio a few years ago, um, and I talked to some of the people who use their product, these are young lawyers who are, you know, late 20s, 30s, and they want to practice law, but they don't want to have to use simply accounting or other programs that are just not efficient for what they want to do. They're not intuitive, and they know that there's better technology out there. They know there's better ways to do it, you know, So, and they're trying to do it in their own way, maybe as a solo firm or, you know, partnership firm with two or three people. So we kind of need to think about those guys, too, you know, because we want to keep those lawyers in the profession, If we keep giving out a message of technology is bad, we're going to lose a lot of good lawyers in the long term.
0: Right. All right. That was all I had for you, Julie. Uh, Was there anything that you wanted to talk about or anything else that you wanted to cover before we signed off?
1: No, it was a pleasure to chat with you, and, and I really hope everyone reads it with an open mind. I'm a lawyer myself, and so I just want other lawyers to know about what's going on out there and how the technology out there can make their lives a little bit easier, just a little bit easier. So I just hope everyone reads it with an open mind.
0: Great. I'm sure they will. Thank you, Julie. Before we sign off, do you have any contact information that you would like to leave for our listeners?
1: Sure. Readers can find me on Twitter at nslegal, Legal. And I would love to have a chat with anyone. And if people would also like more information about different companies or other people who are talking about legal tech, feel free to tweet me.
0: Great. I'm Victor Lee. Thank you again for listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.